Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vincent Horn, back from a little podcasting hiatus. And I'm here to introduce the first episode in our newest season of Buddhist Geeks. We're rebooting the podcast this year with new thematic explorations of in-depth topics, conversations around these topics. And our first guest, who I'm going to introduce in a moment, is exploring the perspective that Buddhist ethics is actually a fraud. Before we jump into that, I wanted to share a little bit also about what we've been up to in the hiatus, in our break. We've been developing some new projects and programs, and some of them you might find interesting and relevant to the show. Um, The first, and I think the one we spent the most energy on really, is a new project called Meditate.io. And Meditate.io is really focused on mind training in the digital age. So how can we train our minds in the 21st century? What does it mean to practice meditation today's age? It's really our focus on unbundling the various core meditative practices that we've seen in the Buddhist tradition, concentration, mindfulness, heartfulness, inquiry, and awareness, and presenting an in-depth approach to training in any one or any multiple of those styles of meditation. There's a free course that gives kind of an overview of those five styles at meditate.io if you want to check it out or send anyone else you know who might be interested to check it out. And we're also crowdfunding over the next week or so our first in-depth course on concentration. It's a discovery course looking at concentration practice, both as a formal practice and also as a life practice. So anything you can do to support that work would be very much appreciated. If there are folks you know who might be interested, who maybe just want to jump right into a particular style of meditation or learn about the different styles and find out which one works for them, who don't necessarily want to learn the entire Buddhist system or learn a complex system, Um, send them to meditate.io. Check it out yourself. Love to hear what you think. And then this week, um, we're going to start off the Buddhist Geeks podcast again with David Chapman. He's going to be exploring in conversation with me today Buddhist ethics, the notion of Buddhist ethics, and his thesis is that Buddhist ethics is actually a fraud. You can check out more at his blog, meaningness.com, where he's done a series of blog articles on Buddhist ethics. 40,000 words worth. It's a really good in-depth article. Um, We're going to discuss more in our conversation, but if you want to go really in-depth, check that out. And thank you so much for being here and joining us on the Rebooted Buddhist Geeks podcast. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Cool. Hey, David. How's it going? Real good. How are you? Awesome. Good. Good, good, good. Just a kind of a reminder for folks that are you know, kind of listening to this after the fact, um, you know, David and I are having a conversation today as part of this series on um, ethics that we're exploring with Buddhist geeks now. And I wanted to start, David, chatting with you for the series in part because you've written a really compelling um, series of blog articles about Buddhist ethics. And your claim, if if I could, you know, if I could say something about your claim in the beginning is, you know, in a sense, there's no such thing as quote unquote Buddhist ethics. And it's a strong place to start, and you use that as the basis for kind of deconstructing a lot of notions um, that I think many folks um, who practice Buddhism uh, have about ethics and Buddhism, and also then try to, in a sense, uh, reconstruct or offer a, a, a kind of a different vision for how we might move forward with ethical practice. So does that sound kind of accurate from your point of view? Yeah, 
Yeah, very much so. Okay, okay, cool. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about here, but I, w- I was curious if you might say a little bit to start about about this this idea that Buddhist ethics is not Buddhist ethics, because that's it's a pretty, um, for some people, I think it'd be a pretty, pretty radical claim. Yeah, well, in the broadest context, I've been a Buddhist practicing for a couple of decades, and I think many people who are Buddhists struggle to some degree, and I do, with, well, what is Buddhism? Why do we care about it? What is it for? And, you know, there is something really compelling about Buddhism, and at the same time, it's a little bit difficult to say what here is is important. And one common answer to what Buddhism is, is that it's meditation plus ethics. And if that's true or to evaluate that, you have to ask, uh, well, setting the meditation aside, uh, what is Buddhist ethics? What is, um, what is it good for? How do we apply it in practice? How does it differ from the other leading brands? What's distinctively Buddhist about it? Why would we prefer it to other ethics? And, you know, if you ask that question, I think the answer is pretty startling. Um, I think a way of setting it up is to ask, supposing you grew up in a secular American leftish household, and you went to university and you encountered Buddhism, and it's something about it's pretty exciting, and you start to get into it, and maybe you start meditating. And you know, at some point you say, yeah, okay, I, I, I buy into this, I'm a Buddhist now. And 20 years later, uh, you're a committed Buddhist. How has your ethics changed? What do you do differently ethically as a Buddhist than you would as a secular leftist American? I basically can't think of anything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's kind of the starting point here, and in some way, this is amazing. I mean, Shakyamuni Buddha, twenty five hundred years ago, taught exactly the same ethics that was only rediscovered in California thirty years ago. You know, he was feminist and sexually liberal and environmentally conscious, and um, you know, anti racist. So great, you know, we've we've got this religion that completely validates all the correct ethical positions, and it's twenty five hundred years old. Okay, okay, cool. So, so <laughs> yeah, good, good. No, this is this is. I think this is. I, I like how you laid it out so uh, so so plainly there, and um, uh, and, and you know, it's funny because as I was reading your kind of analysis of Buddhist ethics and original Buddhist morality and how it actually was, you know, uh, as far as we yep. know, uh, in the time of the Buddha and then, and then how it is now. I mean, one thing I was struck by that just seemed like kind of common sense having hung, hung out in Buddhist scenes for a while is, you know, especially when I first entered into um, the insight meditation tradition and started practicing at some of their major centers and hanging out with some of the teachers and people it did immediately strike me that this was like uh, some sort of Buddhist meditative um, system wrapped with hippie ethics or wrapped with mm-hmm. like a hippie political thing. And, and I knew that because I disagreed with a lot of it. <laughs> and, ah. I was like, and I was like, uh, this is not how I would you know, approach uh, ethics. And I was like, and so, uh, yeah, this, there's something about this that seems a little... Suspect, and I didn't, you know, go into the analysis that you did, but it it did seem it did seem like there was something a little fishy going on in in terms of presenting it as Buddhist. Oh, that's great that you're so suspicious. <laughs> yeah, and so I for, for me, I just sort of took the meditation training and kind of, you know, really, I mean, even even with the precepts, really didn't find that to be a central part of my practice. And I know some people do. But mm-hmm. um, I, my sense, and this is where I totally agree with your your take on it. You know, 
is uh, my sense is people have to kind of force the precept and ethical practices of Buddhism into a kind of weird container, weird practice to make it relevant. Yeah. Um, because like you say, it's the, the precepts are not things we, we normally, um, at least the way that they're taught in a lot of Western centers, we normally um, have much of a problem with anyway. And, and, and like you say, also they're, also they're often ignored when you're outside of like, like meditation retreat contexts. So, yeah, that's and, and and they have to be. I mean, the, the precepts are contrary to contemporary Western secular morality, and so they actually have to be explained away, or ignored, or modified, or loosened, or um, restated. And if you look at the textual explanations of the precepts as given by for example, the Insight Meditation Society, Spirit Rock, they're very, very different from anything that you'd see uh, in the tradition. Okay, interesting. So, I mean, there's one thing I want to get into around the distinction between morality and ethics, because that, that seems like a key mm-hmm. part of what you explore, and it's also, I think, a key part of this series. Um, but there's, there's, there's a small point of disagreement in my experience in a very narrow context, which is on intensive retreats, especially longer retreats at places like Spirit Rock and IMS, they do actually um, treat the at least the five and eight precepts as, I think, by the book. Like they, there mm-hmm. is an explicit expectation of celibacy, and it is pretty straightforward kind of what you how you would interpret the Pali canon. So that, at least in that, in that training environment, it is pretty, you know, they do actually follow it. But then when they talk about it on the outside, you know, to, to people looking in, they do use a language and they do talk about it in a much more loose way than when you actually go on a long retreat. They, I mean, they kind of expect you, you, you're, you are celibate during that time and you are, you know, um, really following the letter of the law. Um, so That's I'm, interesting. Yeah, just but just during that time, it's not expected that you'd that you'd be celibate outside of it. But you do sort of become slightly like a, a, a mini monk, you know, in those uh, environments. Is there an explanation for why? Um, because the rhetoric, at least in modern Asian. Theravada is that you take the lay precepts fairly literally as a lay person in your daily life. Yeah. Is there an explanation that you know of for why you don't need to do that if you're an American? I think it's, I mean, it's, you know, again, this is from the sort of the insight meditation side of things. And what's interesting about that, and we've talked about this, is, you know, there's there's a very real difference between how the insight tradition is practiced on the East Coast and how it's practiced on the West Coast. And, yes. you know, it's typically described as more conservative on the East Coast and more progressive on the West Coast, just like pretty much everything on the East and West Coast is. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, and so I'd say my experience at IMS, you know, when I was training there a lot, maybe 10 years ago, the explanation that was given for why you want to have those training, why you want to practice those training precepts um, you know, a lot of it had to do with um, I mean a lot of it was explained in terms of kind of a mind training like you're noticing when desires are rising and you're not sort of acting out of it in the case of the you know uh, se- sexual misconduct um, mm-hmm. and, and and there's very you know various dis- you know explanations given for each of the precepts as to why it's a good idea and how it relates to meditation training and to you know, sort of awakening and wisdom and stuff. Um, That's nice. There's, I think, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, yeah, and there, I mean, there is a lot of. I, I found a lot of value in it in the early years. You know, being you know a nineteen year old who had been go- going from you know partying, binge drinking on the weekends to suddenly meditating in a Buddhist center. <laughs> I mean, that was uh-huh. useful. <laughs> it was a useful <laughs> movement. But it changed, yeah. it changed dramatically for me, and I can imagine for a lot of people, it's too puritanical or too, you know, too restrictive. Actually, 
Yes. And I think a lot of people just tend to, especially if you're just coming for a weekend or a week even, maybe you try it out during the retreat. But then when you go home, I don't think a lot of people are taking those, those training precepts that seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I uh, say in the analysis is that the the Buddhist tradition is renunciative other than tantric Buddhism, and renunciation um, of all desire of worldly concerns, um, that's really kind of a driving principle. Uh, during the history of modernist Buddhism over the last 150 years, that's gotten replaced with um, essentially a Puritanism, which is a different Western moral principle of uh, moderation and, uh, you know, being sort of suspicious of your own desire rather than uh, rejecting all worldly pleasures and um first of all that's you know it's not the same but also it's it it sort of works for americans because puritanism is a foundation of american culture um but it i'm not a big fan of puritanism um nor of indulgence but uh i i don't really think that's good for us and so within buddhism you either have renunciation or you have tantra where the principle is one of um desire and pleasure being good and i'm kind of more in favor of that right 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 yeah no that was that was one of the most interesting parts of reading your series that i not having known much about Puritanism, actually, and about the, the the morality of Puritanism, like living inside of it, but not having studied it, uh, yeah. I, I found that really fascinating to make a distinction between the Puritan moral principles and the and the sort of early Buddhist moral principles, um, because they do seem similar, and yet, um, you know, e- even hearing stories of folks that I know who've gone to Asia to practice. Um, there's a very real difference, in, and, and granted, like you, you also point out, you know, modern um, moral principles have kind of gone back and forth between West and East in the modernization process. So it's hard to it's hard to say like in Asia they're practicing the real old school Buddhist morality or something um, because it's not that quite that that way. And yet, hearing descriptions of the folks I know who've gone to Burma, for instance, to practice or to Myanmar, rather, um, you know, they describe what sounds uh, less like a Puritan morality and more a little bit more like you know what what you read in the Pali Canon, for instance. That's interesting. It's a little more yeah, strict. Yeah, it's like a little yeah. more strict and a little more, I guess, traditional. But yeah, I find that really fascinating. And you know that maybe we could talk a little bit about the difference between morality and ethics too, because mm-hmm. you know yeah. that, that I think that's one of the the other really interesting things you talk about ethics in in this series more in terms of like how it actually affects your actions you know what what are, what are these ethical principles or, or, or ethical ways of making sense of the world how do they actually impact how you act versus you know what you're describing as morality you know it's like, almost like you're reflecting on your experience and you're trying to you know be aware of and and kind of it's somehow more self-reflexive and not so much about what you're doing. Um, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, that's that's another aspect of of uh, Puritanism is that the essential thing is to get the right mental attitude rather than to uh, the action is is secondary to um, being uh, sincere and authentic. Uh, there's also a an element of romanticism in that where um, there, there, there's definitely, particularly in Mahayana, there's a uh, consideration of, of intent yes. in, uh, in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, but 
what you actually do and what the consequences are also matter. And that tends to be um, de-emphasized in the uh, Protestant and Romantic tradition. Um, the distinction between morality and ethics I, I took from Damien Kuhn. Uh, I'm not quite sure how he pronounces his name. It's K-E-O-W-N. Uh, he founded the Journal of Buddhist Ethics and wrote one of the major books uh, on Buddhist ethics. And his distinction is that morality is the specific content of um, what you are supposed to do or not do, the, the thou shalt nots, and virtues, uh, patience or discipline or something like that, that's supposed to be good. Mm. Um, and then ethics is the structure of explanations that says why these things are good or bad. And what he observes and a number of other people have also observed and confirmed is that in traditional Buddhism, there's a fair amount of morality and almost no ethics. There's very little explanation of why things are good and bad or any sort of um, theory of, of that. And so we've got these lists of um, you know, thou shalt not, but uh, if we disagree with some of them, we can't really argue one way or the other because there's no story about why that's good or bad. Yeah, so they're just sort of like, almost like pure universal dictums, like you always operate based on this principle. Well, yeah, or, or even not so much a principle as, you know... Just do um, it. You just do this yeah, or don't do, do this. <laughs> you yeah, don't even need don't to know even, the principle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then just the principles really aren't there. Um, you know, don't eat afternoon. Why? I don't know what it doesn't say. Um, you know, don't have oral sex. How come? No explanation. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because I've, I've heard... You know, I've heard that the, you know, part of how the Vinaya and the sort of the, the moral code got laid down was sort of, it was sort of just like in response to stuff that would happen that would be disruptive to the way of life that the, the monastics had like then. You know, it's like, oh, this dude just kept going out and doing something to disrupt, you know, um, their neighbors and that caused problems. And then, you know, presumably, um, you know, they said, oh, well, this dude kept doing this thing, so let's not do that. <laughs> you know, let's uh -huh. stop doing that thing. Um, yeah, you know, and and I don't know if that's accurate, but it it seemed like you know if that was the way that the moral kind of guidelines got laid down, um, it didn't sound like it was based on a, a particularly principled or or you know stepping back and kind of thinking deeply about you know in what context these actions make sense or don't make sense. It was more just like, oh, like that's 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 keeping us from being able to do our thing here. So let's just stop doing that, uh, and yeah. no one do that. And and in fact, you know that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, it's a very pragmatic attitude that I like. The problem is that uh, you know this was describing a group of uh, people, men mostly from the upper middle class of. Uh, Indian society 2,000-some years ago, and what they were doing in the social and cultural context in which they're doing, that's completely different from what we're doing in our context. And so if you just accumulate pragmatic rules for what didn't work there, then that's probably not going to apply to us. Right, because the context changed so dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, in a way, I mean, part of what I hear you saying, and and this is another area that I that I really tend to agree with, is that in a way, like the modernization of Buddhism, we've essentially, as practitioners in particular, and teachers and communities, have been finding ways to take what makes sense to us and sort of reverse adapt it to the text that we've been handed in the stories. And it's like we're kind of adapting ourselves onto the history 
um, and changing, in a sense, changing the history to fit us and then saying, yeah. actually, that's the way it was. And so therefore, yes. we're going to practice it this way. Um, and somehow deri- then de- weirdly deriving authority back from that fictional history that we've constructed or that we've been handed by someone who constructed it. Um, and then and then treating it as like our kind of guideline. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's uh, you know modern mythology that uh, you know was only invented by people that we know personally thirty years ago, and they're teaching it as though it was fact, and that might be pragmatically sensible and useful to their students, but it bugs me. How come? How comes it bug me? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, because it means that people can't ask whether it really works now. Um, if it's not, you know, something that some American invented 30 years ago, which is the reality of it, but, you know, the original teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha 2,500 years ago, that's what it's said to be. You know, if you think that Buddhism is the religion of what it says in the scriptures and what he said, then you can't argue. If it's something that was invented by an American 30 years ago, you can argue. And I think, um, you know, I I want to argue with a lot of the ethics taught by uh, Buddhist teachers in America now. I think a lot of that I, I don't actually agree with. And so uh, I would like to strip away the illusion that this is uh, has some kind of religious justification. Okay, interesting. So I, I guess where, I mean, where I'm thinking it'd be fun to go, and, and maybe we'll have to loop back around to some ideas here, but if we were to strip away some of those illusions, as, as you put it, um, what would we be left with, I think, is, is maybe the question that comes to my mind. Uh, in terms of ethics? In, ter- or in terms of the whole package, like Buddhism. in terms of Buddhism. Yeah, in terms of Buddhism. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's a whole other kettle of fish. Is it? Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah, um, because, you know, I make the claim that there's actually no value in Buddhist ethics as it is currently taught because it is simply contemporary secular leftist ethics. You don't need Buddhism for that. It's got nothing to do with Buddhism. Um, you know, you can take or leave that or, you know, take which parts of it you want or not based on an evaluation of it in terms of current secular culture and, you know, what's useful for us now. Um, so if you say, well, actually, if I say there's no value in what's taught as Buddhist ethics, then that opens up the entirely different question of what is there of value in Buddhism, Mm -hmm. which I'm happy to talk about, (laughs) but it's a different conversation. Okay, cool. So where that leads me though, and I guess why I ask it is, it seems like what you're left with in a sense is a lot of different kind of meditative training techniques and a lot of stories and a lot of principles and a lot of ideas that, um, you know, while you can find some of them in other traditions, like there, there's, there are some that are quite unique to that, you know, to that um, kind of mm-hmm. stream of, of, information and knowledge and i i guess the one thing i'm curious about is you know there is something that happens when you kind of combine that with secular leftist ethics and i'm not saying that's the most interesting thing but it does seem to me you know if you are practicing your secular leftist ethics with this like kind of added meditative skill training it does kind of change how you understand those ethics because you are, you know, if you are even, say, reflecting on your mental attitude, you have a certain level of skill at being able to discern what that attitude is that maybe the Puritans didn't have. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you, you're bringing something from that other training into the secular Western ethics that seems like it changes it in some way. And I'm not saying that's particularly valuable, mm-hmm. but it is interesting. 
Yeah, no, I think that's interesting too. And that's a point I didn't touch on at all in what I wrote. Um, I, I think what I wrote, I felt was, was complete when I finished it, but I'm now thinking that maybe a little bit of a loose end. Um, interestingly, uh, Ahmad Lele, uh, wrote some, um, r- responses to what I'd written. And one of the things that he said is that, uh, there is a, an important difference between um, Buddhist ethics and secular Western ethics, which is that there is no um, that, that Buddhist ethics is uh, not big on self-righteous anger, and that's self-righteous anger is a big part of secular leftish ethics. I mean, you mm. get on your high horse about people being racist or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and if you're a Buddhist, you probably ought not to be doing that. Um, and I think meditation does change the way you relate to things emotionally. And one of them is that self-righteous anger is, is kind of drops out. And, um, I do, you know, I feel, I, I think I didn't write about it because I can't put my finger on it. And maybe you just sort of said you also can't quite put your finger on it. But it does seem that uh, somehow, I mean, I think the intuition that there ought to be such a thing as Buddhist ethics does come out of the sense that somehow the meditation practice does, because it changes your idea of what a person is, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and ethics is about how people relate to each other. Uh there, there's, there is something important there, and I didn't write about it because I didn't think of it. Maybe I, I haven't read anything that anybody has written that really seems to get into that in a deep way. But mm-hmm. I agree that there is maybe something important there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because you're saying you know one, one way of thinking about Buddhism is you know combining um, ethics and meditation, and I, I kind of go back to the whole ethics, meditation, and wisdom. You know that translation that Trungpa used of the three trainings to kind of try to understand, you know, what, what is it that Buddhism seems to be claiming it is, um, mm-hmm. or what we seem to understand it as, is that combination of three things. And yet, you know, l- looking at some of the people, even historically, who talk about those three trainings, they seem to have a hard time completely differentiating them out from each other. Like, you know, for us to sort of talk just about ethics, which is what the series is about, um, we almost have to treat it as if it's completely separate from meditation and the ideas of wisdom that are found in Buddhism. And yet, you know, they're not completely separatable if one is engaging in all of them in some way. And so, you know, I I guess that's kind of what I hear you um, talking about a little bit is the, the way that it's difficult to kind of totally parse those things apart. Yes. Um, I think in, in terms of that formulation, it's, um, there's an important fact that is a, a pervasive confusion in discussion of Buddhist ethics, which is, um, this word Shila, or I guess it's Sila in Pali, yes. which, um, which means, uh, basically a code of discipline. Yes. And it gets translated as ethics. Right, right. Um, because we really, really want there to be such a thing as Buddhist ethics, but there isn't in the tradition. And so the closest thing is is Shila, and uh, there's a lot of, by mistranslating that as ethics, a lot of confusions arise. And if you think of... Uh, meditation, wisdom, and discipline. That's a little different than meditation, wisdom, and ethics. Okay. Yes. Good. No, and I had, you know, and that's something that I, that I kind of, um, yeah, that as I was reading your stuff, I, I thought, I thought a lot about that. And, and one of the questions that came up for me is, I mean, it's a, it's a question about what Buddhism even is. Yeah. And, um, you know, our, our most recent 
attempt at finding uh, what 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 our current koan is for Buddhist geeks, because our last one ran out of juice a while ago. Um, right now, the way we're framing it is, you know, if, if we see Dharma in the world, liberate it. Mm. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same response for me. And so part of that is, you know, like, what is Dharma? What is Buddhism? You know, it's so much of it seems to be um, a lot of a lot of idealism and mm-hmm. a lot of unrecognized, you know, cribbing off of other systems and then calling it Buddhism, like you say. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess there's a big question for me about, you know, this whole dialectic of Buddhism and how we're constantly going back to these things, to people and to texts and to our relationships. And we're, we're sort of saying like, okay, what is Buddhism? How do I practice this? How do I do this thing? And then we do it and then we have our own understanding of it that starts to emerge. And then we, we, we start of influence what it is um, and what we say it is <laughs> changes, you know, it. Mm-hmm. and so, you know, if, if the problem that you, part of the problem you're describing, and, and I see this a lot too, is if we're trying to take our current ideas and sort of claim that that's always been the case, you know, wait right back to Siddhartha, you know, poor Sid, you know, he's, he's got to be responsible for all of our um, understandings of Buddhism. Um, if part, of, if part of the problem is that we're doing that and then trying to claim that that's the case and use that authority to, to maintain an unquestionable kind of system or something. Um, then yeah. what, what would happen if we just say, hey, like, this is my understanding of this stuff. And I'm not saying it's the same thing as what the Buddha said or that even like the folks that I studied with and learned from said. Like it's also been influenced by those, all these other things. And, you know, I don't even know exactly how to describe how it's changed. But like this is what it is now for me. And I'm finding a way to still say that this is somehow related to Buddhism um, or whatever. <laughs> um, I, I guess that's where I am with it right now is, you know, like, does does does, does, does your whole critique kind of, like, does it kind of loosen if someone just, like, takes ownership for what, you know, what they're doing and says, hey, I'm just making, I'm in a sense, I'm making this up, but I'm influenced by these sources. Um, yeah, yeah, but, I, I, I think that's, that's very much the approach that I like and would like to see is people saying explicitly, we're reinventing this. We're taking these elements from these traditions or this tradition, and we're reinterpreting them in this way for these reasons. And here it is. And here's why we think it's going to work or not work or what it's good for, or why it's important. Um, instead of, yeah, falsifying the history. Um, I, I like I like the word reinvention because I'm a tech geek, I guess. Hmm. But you know, reinvention is something that you do explicitly, or you should do explicitly. I I, I think the the um, a part of my critique is that this because the history was falsified, it was possible to gradually replace all of Buddhism with American culture without noticing that that had happened. And in the end, there was essentially nothing left except for you know, modern Vipassana. And that then you know, led to this war between some Buddhists and secular meditation movement, uh, where the Buddhists were saying, well, you, know, you can't leave the rest of Buddhism out. But then they couldn't say what the rest of Buddhism was. And they tried to say it was ethics, but there isn't any ethics. So um, I, I kind of see... Buddhism, as you could sort of imagine it as this vast ruined city that is, you know, two thousand some years old, and there's all these different styles of architecture, and these fantastic buildings, palaces, and and temples, but they're all in ruins, and we're kind of wandering around in this archaeological site, and we're thinking, okay, we'd like to build our own temple. And we've got all these great pieces of art and, you know, cornices and uh, rooftops and so on. And some of them are 
pretty intact and a lot of them are broken, but maybe we can cobble something together out of this. Yeah, that's an interesting metaphor for, for what, what it's like. Because there's, so, I mean, because there's so much in that sort of uh, ruined city. I mean, there's so many different kinds of things going on. Um, yeah, and and again, this sort of the 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 falsified history has obscured almost all of that. So there's this sort of very simplistic uh, prefab thing that's been put up as a kind of a screen in front of the rest of it, and so you can't see all the cool, bizarre stuff that's there. You can only see this very narrow thing that is taken over as, as the, what Buddhism is. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, that, that gets into really, what's a, a kind of a bizarre notion to me, which is that, you know, if you're really in the, in the business of reinvention, a lot of the inspiration for that comes from digging back into the past and finding yeah. things well, that somehow got lost. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of been the approach that I've taken. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, to, to me, like the, the fact that someone would want to dig back in the past and look through that, you know, the ruined city, um, you know, I mean, that to me alone maybe makes someone Buddhist in a sense, you know, or at least it, mm-hmm. it, it brings them into a relationship to that in a way that, um, you know, if they're being honest, they have to, to, to acknowledge that's a source of inspiration or, or influence on what they're, what they're doing or creating. Yeah. Well, I call myself a Buddhist. Yeah, totally. And I, I most days <laughs> I do as well. Um. <laughs> I, I sort of, I'm a Buddhist little asterisk and then there's a lot of fine print under that, but yeah. yes, yes, exactly. Um, okay. So th- there's a couple, there's a couple things that you, as you're saying, you know, uh, it reminded me of some other pieces and parts of your writing here that, um, that were pretty uh, ass kicking, and um, one one of them had to do with the whole mindfulness and um, Buddhist, you know, uh, uh, battle. I, I'll call it a battle. I think there's a battle going on between the mindfulness camp and the Buddhist camp, at least some parts of the Buddhist camp. And um, it seems like a lot of what you said in this article shines a light on on some of 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 what's happening there, and it. Um, what I found really helpful because I've talked to some of the folks that you mentioned in this article, like Ron Purser, who's really taking a strong stance against um, corporate mindfulness and sort of looking at, you know, and sort of critiquing the use of mindfulness in, in, in corporate environments, you know, because it's kind of like, well, yeah, stripping away from ethics and, and sort of using this, this like tech, you know, this mind technology to, to sort of, uh, power, whatever kind of corrupt ethical capitalist thing he sees going on there, um, and it's hard to argue for me at least. It's hard to argue that that's not probably the happening in some cases, and that you know <laughs> maybe we don't want people, you know, <laughs> Goldman Sachs, <laughs> who has like you know who, who have a history of just like you know stripping wealth from vast majorities of the populate, you know, the middle class, and and then just like getting bailed out somehow. Um, you know, the, the, you, the, them having the power of m- a more mindful attention might not be great for the rest of us. <laughs> um, yeah. And yet, and yet, there's something about that whole argument that really, it really just does sound like, you know, this professor in California who's, you know, and I, I like Ron as a person, but, I, you know, just to say, like, regardless, he sounds like a, you know, a cranky, you know, uh, left, leftist boomer professor to me, you know, and there's a lot in that that, you know, I think, you could disagree with and even being a Buddhist practitioner, you could say, Oh, that sounds like bullshit to me, you know, and here's mm-hmm. why and why and why, um, you know, not to get into those arguments, but you know, one of the points that I heard you making is that like what he suggests doing about it is actually just the same, same old, same old in terms of Puritan, you know, puritanical morality. Like we need to just reflect on how we're relating to this. And, you know, mm-hmm. and really, like, make a shift. No, we're not going to do anything about it. Like, we're not going to go protest in front of Goldman Sachs or, you know, we're not going to, like, say that, you know, w- you know, we're not going to, 
have to have an application process for anyone coming into a mindfulness class that you know describes where you work and if you work at a certain place you're not allowed to take the workshop or something. Um, yeah. So anyway, I was wondering if you could say a bit about that because to me that was um, it it, sh- it shined a light on part of why I continued to find that argument less than persuasive. Yeah. Well, I. Uh, there's a, a word steel man. Um, there's a, a straw man argument is where you mischaracterize your opponent's argument as something that's weaker than it really is. Um, and so the, to steel man is the opposite to try to make an argument of your opponent's argument as strong as you can make it before critiquing it. Um, and I made a, I think really sincere effort to steel man, um, the argument made by Ron Purser and others, uh, and sort of came at it from a number of different angles and, and tried to find some sense in it. And I wound up failing. And so then, uh, I instead tried to say rather cynically, what kind of motivations people who make that argument might have. And that's kind of unfair, but uh, I, I did want to try to understand what's going on, and um, uh, this the, that uh, blog post followed another one which uh, tried to make the case that Buddhist ethics is essentially a personal advertising strategy that uh, saying uh, you're a Buddhist makes you look good because you have this special kind of ethics that makes you more ethical than everybody else. Um, and uh, if you go around saying, oh, I'm a Buddhist, then everybody ought to trust you and um, sleep with you and stuff like that. Uh, so um, that, uh, in order for that advertising strategy to work, um, it has to be slightly credible that by saying you're a Buddhist, you are a good person. And if bad people are practicing meditation, which is kind of the, maybe is thought of as the core of Buddhism, um, then, uh, you know, Buddhism no longer has this special status. And so um, if we allow meditation to be taught without the ethics, then we're on a slippery slope to not being able to uh, be thought of as a good person by saying that we're Buddhists. I don't know if that's right, but it was the best sense I could make of what's going on there. Yeah, no, that that was, um, you know, that, that sort of article in particular in the kind of social was it I think it was ethics is advertising right it was the yeah the framework for that yeah that I mean to me that was one of the most interesting points uh the idea that that being a Buddhist is a kind of social signaling as you put it that's one of my most popular ever articles it's really took off with a lot of non-Buddhists who who recognized that the patterns of um, status claims that I analyzed for Buddhism actually apply in lots of other contexts. Yes. Right. I mean, I was going to say that 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 the way that you kind of broke that out, it, it seems like it would apply to to so many different kind of uh, identities and, and, and groups and cultures um, and ones that wouldn't even seem anything like Buddhism, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Were there were there certain groups that like that you found uh, operating in the same way, or did you did you discover any um, kind of similarities in other groups from like the people that were finding your uh, finding that article? Uh, well, it's sort of hard to say who it all was who was excited about it. Um, uh, there were, um, I, I think. Interestingly enough, because it's critiquing a Buddhism is as taught in America as sort of a leftish ideology, I think it got some 
<laughs> attraction with rightists who, in general, see the same patterns of hypocrisy among leftists. Um, so I think that was one source of uh, of interest, but I don't think that was a majority. Interesting. You know this this whole thing about yeah the the political identity and the and the religious identity and the kind of fusion of those through ethics is really fascinating. Um, and in a way, yeah, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, one of the things that always kind of bugged me about having to go to these places to learn the stuff that I couldn't quite find anywhere else <laughs> was that I had to kind of go in and, and be like immersed in their sort of political, like the culture, the political culture of it all, you know, oftentimes yeah. very left-leaning and very progressive. And well, I, I have a lot, a lot of appreciation for that. I went to Naropa University for three years and lived in Boulder, which is like one of the most, you know, left-leaning places on earth. Um, it's, it, it gets, it gets frustrating not being able to um, disagree with other people about those things when you're in a context where somehow disagreement and frustration and conflict uh, is seen as like an, antithetical to the whole uh, operation. <laughs> you <know>? uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, for, would... for me, it's, it's like, you know, now I, I, I actually sort of intentionally am, am like a, a dick sometimes in those contexts just to kind of like, you know, cause some friction there because I think it's it's such a it's such a weird power play. Yes, well, that's actually the core of my critique of what I call consensus Buddhism. That it is a hegemonic power play um, that is enforced through intense social pressure against dissent and it calls itself I mean it has all this rhetoric of inclusivity and diversity but it's actually highly exclusive of um, alternative viewpoints and does not tolerate dissent on sacred principles After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.